I felt last week as I was teaching, I was a little bit kind of off, off my game. And one of the things that was off my game was, um, you know, we were reading in the book of Esther and there was this character that we, we encountered, this guy named, and again, I kept calling him Hat Hatch. That was the way that my new, uh, <clears throat> my new remote's getting me a little. And I think in your guys' Bibles, it was just, there was no H here, right? It was just like Hathach, is that right? So I just wanted to, to, to let you guys know that I'm not crazy. That, that's, that's actually how it is in my Bible. He's just got a, a different name. And when I couldn't pronounce his name right at the beginning of the teaching, this, this eunuch that kind of was going back and forth, I was all messed up. But there it is right there. Good old Hat Hatch. Hat, hat, that's how I call it. Hat Hatch. Hat Hatch? Hat Hatch? Um, only the second best name in the book of Esther, next to Big Thana, as I, I like to call the, one of the guys who was plotting against the king. Um, we, we left last week, too, and we're talking about this kind of go back and forth. Um, and at the end of chapter 4, there's a little bit of a... And again, we, we know the story. We're familiar with the story, so we don't encounter it as a cliffhanger. But there is a little bit of a cliffhanger here, right? So Esther, at the end of chapter 4, she, as she and Mordecai are talking, she says, Okay, I'll agree, and Mordecai, I'll go in front of the king, right? I'll go in front of this king. And then she says, um, and if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish, right? Um, so it's a little bit of this, this cliffhanger, and I did a little, just, I don't, I don't know, I can't even call this research. It was just fun. I was like, what are some great cliffhangers in movies, right? And so, you know, you just kind of type in top 10 movie cliffhangers. Um, and remember, I think the number one one was Inception. Who's seen Inception? Remember that movie? And at the end, he spins the... He spins the, the, little, the little top and does the top fall and he's back in the real world or does it keep spinning and he's still in a dream state and there's kind of this cliffhanger. One of the ones that I came across that was just remarkable was this old movie clip. Um, it was an, or an old movie. It's called The Italian Job. It's the old Italian job, not the Mark Wahlberg. Anybody seen this one? Huh? You've seen it? So you know what I'm talking about here? Who hasn't, who hasn't seen the, I think, I think it's 1969 Italian job. So again, another, it's funny because Michael Caine's in this film as well. Michael Caine steals, um, right here kind of in the foreground is, is it gold? Is that what he's, they, they've stolen all this gold. Um, this is just a brilliant, a brilliant end to a movie uh, that I want to share with you guys. It's just so fun to watch. It's about two minutes, two and a half minutes long. So here we go. Did it pause? No, sorry. Get back, get back. Okay, here we go. Yeah. 
And that's it. That's the end of the movie right there. <laughs> so that's how the movie ends. And it's, again, I was like, oh, that's such a, a cool cliffhanger. And again, in, in the book of Esther, we kind of end with this cliffhanger in chapter four, where she, she's in this situation where she's going to go from the king. She's kind of in that bus that's on the edge. And is she going to perish? Is she going to die? Is the king going to extend his, his scepter to her? Or is she going to be saved, right? Um, one of the things that I found um, interesting about this, this, uh, this end of chapter four, I was doing some more study and there was a, um, like this, this stone kind of relief. And, and I, I, I'm not sure if this is the one, I couldn't find the actual one, but the idea that the stone relief was found was this Persian king. And behind this Persian king, um, what the, the archeologist said was there was this man who stood that a soldier who would hold an ax, right? So you had the king on his throne, and behind the king was this soldier who, who stood with an axe. That way, if you did approach the king, and you didn't have that permission, if you didn't have that, you know, hey, I can't, I can't, the, the man with the axe would just, he would just, he would kill you right there. That's how, that's how the kingdom worked. Now, again, one of the things we talked about last week was Esther's this maybe late teenage girl, right? say she's somewhere between 17 and 20 years old, somewhere, somewhere in that, that kind of range. And she's got to go approach not only the king, one of the most powerful kings in the world, but standing right behind this king. And this picture just kind of, again, I don't know if it does it justice. So I just adapted it a little bit to make it a little more intimidating. I put good old Paul Bunyan behind it and Babe the Big Blue Ox, one of my favorite childhood. I thought maybe that would have been funnier than it actually is. <laughs> But, um, you know, she's got to approach the king in this manner, right? The king and the man with the axe behind. And if she doesn't uh, figure it out, then she's going she's gonna to die, right? Now, chapter 4 ends in this kind of teeter-totter moment. I'm going to go approach the king, right? And again, I could, I could survive. I could have his scepter and I could have audience with the king. I could also pass away. And then... Uh, last week, one of the things we did is we kind of went like verse by verse, kind of paragraph by paragraph. I want to do a big chunk this week, um, Esther's 5 through 7. And here's just kind of the flow of it, right? Esther, at the beginning of chapter 5, the king says, oh, you know, I'll grant you an audience. And he extends the royal uh, scepter to her. And she throws the king a banquet in which just the king and Mordecai are invited to this banquet. Or, I'm sorry, king, uh, the king and Haman are invited to this banquet. Right? So they have this, this party, this celebration. Haman leaves the party as he's walking out of the party, as he's walking out of the king's gate. He sees Mordecai at the king's gate. And Mordecai, again, defiant, will not bow down to him. So he's furious. He goes home and he makes this plan with his wife and his friends about how he's going Morde- to kill Mordecai the next day. Well, as, as, as Haman's home making this plan about how he's going to kill Mordecai, Xerxes can't sleep. He remembers that Mordecai had saved his life from this assassination plot. And he says, was, was Mordecai ever, um, was he ever rewarded? And there was no reward for him. And then Mordecai is honored, um, honored by Xerxes, right? The next day, Haman comes in. He's like, hey, I'm going to kill Mordecai. Here's how it's going to go down. And, and Xerxes is like, actually, you're going to honor him. You're going to parade him through the streets on my horse, wearing my robe. It's this very poetic, this divine justice. Um, it's this kind of funny moment by the author as Haman thinks he's going to kill him and as Haman um, thinks that, you know, he's going to make Mordecai bow down to him. He's actually having to lead this parade 
um, of, of Mordecai through the streets. Um, Esther throws the king another banquet, and she says, I want you to save my people. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I want you to save my people from this man, Haman, right? Haman's about to annihilate, um, anni- I'm sorry, annihilate all my people, and I want you to, to save him. Uh, the king's so distraught because as a king, when you make a rule, right, you don't just say, well, but just forget it. Let's tear it up. Like all the decree has been sent out all over the kingdom. So he's so distraught that he walks out of the banquet. Haman then like kind of approaches Esther and is somehow like hanging on to her or, or pleading for his life. And again, the king happens to walk in at this moment and he thinks that, he thinks that Haman's making a move on his queen. He's furious at Haman. And then in that very next moment, he ends up putting, and again, here's kind of another, um, another relief, another stone carving. Um, he's actually, and this isn't necessarily Haman, but you can kind of see what they would do is they would make these large, these large stakes here, and here would be somebody who would be impaled on this stake. This is kind of what Haman had envisioned for Mordecai, and it actually ends up happening to Haman himself. So again, this is kind of the way that, and you can kind of see the different people. This is how they would choose to kill people. Um, one of the way that the Persians would choose to kill people is these giant stakes, and they'd hang them on these giant stakes, right? So Haman goes from, you know, number two in command, top of the world, um, very, you know, having everything. He's at these exclusive parties, and then he goes, all of a sudden, he's, again, this is him on, on a stake, like within, what, 24 hours? 36 hours, goes from like kind of one day to the next. Um, his descent is so fast and it's incredible that he just, he, he just falls apart like this. And I was looking at his life and I was studying his life and I was thinking, you know, I should give the church some really solid teaching on how to destroy their life. I don't know if we've ever done this, like really how to, to, to make things fall apart. So um, we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. We're going to look at Haman's life and if you want to end up like Haman, destroyed, have your, have your life destroyed, um, I'll, I'll teach you. And by the way, some people have been asking me too, you know, like Eric, you know, we love your teaching. You're so brilliant. You're so wonderful. You're so amazing. Have you thought of a book? And I actually have thought of a book. I'm working on it right now. It's called Your Worst Life Now. <laughs> and I've been working on this bad boy for, for, for years. Man, that took, that took nine tenths of the nine tenths of the sermon. The kids are back in school. I only have one kid at home. I'm just home. Like, wow. That got more laughs than Paul Bunyan. I'm just happy at least one of them. Um. It's the look, man. It's just like... Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's, yeah. Okay, let's move on in life. Um, I want to start, again, I got like kind of three ideas. Haman, Haman, again, his life falls apart. He destroys his life really quickly. And if you look at the scripture and you study the scripture, it's really apparent how that happens. I want to make three points, but what I do is sometimes I'll throw the point up and then I'll explain it. I want to kind of explain it and then distill it down into a point. Um, and teachers, I know a lot of my teacher friends here are back in school. I thought we'd skip to the end and we'd go to, I know teachers, you like to fast forward all the way to the end. We'd go to the commencement speech time. We'd go to the end of the year. There was this commencement speech that I came across that I thought was, was um, really intriguing by, by an author named David Foster Wallace. Have you heard this one, Brian? Uh, this is Water? One of your favorites? One of my favorites? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody else heard this one. Again, David Foster Wallace, and, and uh, 
he did this at a college called Kenyon College. So here's the quote, and I'll, I'll give you the quote. It's a long one, and then we'll kind of expound and talk about it. Um, so here it is. Here's, here's the, the kind of part of the, this, this quote, this, this commencement speech that stood out to me. Mr. Wallace says this. He says, <clears throat> um, he says, here's something else that's weird but true. I like that, just that statement alone. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, right? He goes on to give some examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. He then says, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So Foster gives us, quote, by the way, Foster is by no means a Christian, right? I mean, just, uh, you know, just a great writer, a novelist. Um, but he understands something, again, about the way that human nature works. One of the things I think that he really understands is that we're wired. There's something within us that's wired to worship, right? To, to direct our hearts and our minds towards. And he makes this great little statement here. He says, anything else that you worship will eat you alive, right? When we worship and when we bow to these kind of created things, rather than what we would say as the creator, they end up just eating us alive. Now, Haman, to go back to Haman, right? Here's, here's one of the, the digs of, say, a Persian kind of a temple, right? They worshiped thousands of gods, right? Esther is named after Ishtar, the goddess of, of war, uh, love and war, right? Um, uh, Mordecai, named after Marduk, again, one of, the, one of the Persian gods, right? So there's any number of gods that, they, that Haman would have bowed down to and that Haman would have quote-unquote worshipped, right? But where does Haman really bow down? If you've got a Bible and you want to read this, I think, again, page 346 is, is where we would read this. Um, bring it up real quick. This is chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, again on page 346. Where does Haman bow down, right? Again, Haman, you know, he would have gone and done his religious ceremonies, and he would have done all this stuff at the pantheons of, of all their different gods, and he would have made his sacrifices and his tithes and his treasuries, right? Where does he really bow down? Here's where, here's where you see where his heart's at. He gets his friends together with his wife, Zeresh, and he starts bragging about how much money he had, 
one of the translations says, he went into detail, right? About how much money he had, his many sons, all the times a king had honored him, his promotion to the highest position in, in the government. And then he quotes, on top of all that, Haman continued, can you imagine being at this dinner party, how exciting this would have been? Queen Esther invited me to a private dinner she gave for the king, just the three of us. And she's invited me to another one tomorrow. But I can't enjoy any of it when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, right? See, Mordecai, again, he might have worshipped a lot of things, but you really see where his heart is at, right? Where he really bowed down at. It's power, it's money, it's, it's invite, it's status. It's all these things, right? And, and again, you see that what, what Wallace is saying at Kenyon College in, you know, 2007, 2008, no, later? maybe earlier than that, what he's saying is exactly what's happening to, to Haman in the 400s of BCs, right? Anything else you worship will eat you alive, right? And for us, sometimes we come here and we say, oh yeah, I worship Jesus, I worship Jesus, right? And really what we worship is our career, we worship our home, we worship the status we have in the community, we bow down to all these different things. And I just, again, maybe kind of a, a counterpoint or the negative point, it's not really a way to destroy your life. I want to just highlight this. The worship of Jesus is paramount, right? Period, period, period. It is. The worship of Jesus is paramount, right? Now, when we talk about worship, Again, oftentimes we get confused with, with music time where we kind of sing and we get the warm fuzzies when Brian sings those verses that we like or the chorus and we sing and we kind of feel, or maybe you go to, you know, and like, oh, I love that worship song. The worship of Jesus, when we talk about worship as a church, and we've made this point, the worship of Jesus is our entire being directed towards God, right? The classical understanding of worship, the way the early church would understand worship would be in prayer, in fasting, and in almsgiving, right? The classical church, the early church would have had no idea, like, oh, wait, what do you mean, a, 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 C, a C chord on a guitar, that's worship, right? Some lyrics, some choruses, that's worship? No, no, no. Worship was your entire being directed towards God. Molly, you, when we were praying earlier, um, a couple weeks ago, we had kind of prayer time. And in, in your prayer, I just would remember being so struck, you said, something along the lines of, Jesus, we're gathered to worship you. This is why we gather, is to turn our hearts, once again, towards Jesus. The worship of Jesus is paramount, period, period, period. If you want to destroy your life, try it. And you see this in life. Go worship your career, money, status. Go bow down to these things. Go bow down to anything else. Again, as Foster, uh, as Mr. Wallace says, um, body and beauty, power, intellect, all these sorts of things, you begin to worship these things and you, it, it will, again, as he says, it will eat you alive. Worship Jesus, period, period, period. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is this, and again, we're kind of start wide and then we'll make a conclusion. You think about Haman's life, okay? Think about his life. Here's Haman. 
Remember, he's going to bankroll this genocide, right? 10,000 talents of silver. 750,000 pounds of silver is what this guy's going to figure out how to bankroll this genocide of all the Jews, right? Um, because if you're like me and you get curious, you're thinking to yourself, how much money is 750,000 pounds of silver? Did anybody think that? Yeah. Anybody thought that? Okay. About 200, if, if you, on today's standards, about $18 for an ounce of silver, right? Um, and if you multiply that by 757, 750,000 pounds, you get about more or less $230 million. Okay. So he's, he's doing all right, right? He's just signed a big contract for the Los Angeles Clippers or whoever, you know, he's just kind of, so he's got, he's got more money than he could ever imagine. 10 sons, like 10 sons might be worth more in that culture than $230 million, right? He's got wealth. He's got his sons. He's got, he's second in commands. He's invited to all the it parties. He has honor. He has status. He has success. I was thinking that he's living the American dream 2,200 years before America, right? He's got it all, right? Yet, what? He's not satisfied. He's not satisfied. And he says this at the end of chapter, he says this in chapter 5, verse 11. I can't enjoy any of it. When I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. He has it all and he can't enjoy any of it. He's not satisfied. All of Haman's power, all his entitlements failed to satisfy because he wanted just one more thing, Mordecai to bow. Could you imagine, like say somebody said, okay, here's your life. You got $230 million in the bank. You have a wonderful family. You have a very successful career where you're established in a company. You're invited to the Met Gala in New York. You're invited to all the cool parties in LA. You go to Paris for the, right? And somehow in your heart, you're not happy, right? When I imagine, by the way, um, what hell, I'm sorry, let me go back to this one. When I imagine, by the way, if you want to imagine what hell is like, you don't need to think about devils and pitchforks and flames and yelling and screaming. Think about somebody who walks around who just wants one more thing. They're just not satisfied. There's just the lust for more. There's not enough power. There's not enough status. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough possessions. It's just a bit more. And you see this in Haman. It eats him alive. It destroys him. Right? This is the God of mammon that we talked about. This is Adam and Eve in the garden where they're given everything. And what do they want? I want to try that piece of fruit over there. Right? They've been given everything. Haman has it all and he's not satisfied. I want that Jew to bow down to me. That's what I really want. Right? Paul, when he talks in um, Philippians and we see this verse all the time. The, the famous verse in Philippians is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? I can do it all. And, and this gets used for football. And this gets used for um, getting good grades on tests. And this gets used in all sorts of weird ways. But what's so fascinating with this verse is the way that it's connected to verse 12. Again, Philippians 4.13. And here it is in the message. Here's what Paul says. He says, I've learned 
by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with as little, I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. And that's, again, Peterson's translation of, I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who strengthens me, right? But how is he able to do all things? What's the word here? He's content, right? Paul has found the contentment, right? The only reason he's able to do all these things is because he's found the content. It's not about football games or get good grades on tests or, or all those sorts of stuff. Paul says the secret kind of in life is that there's this contentment that we have that enables us to go out into the world and live a Jesus life, live a life in the kingdom, live a life of a disciple. Yet we don't really live in a culture that preaches and teaches contentment, do we? Right? Now, I've been throwing around this prayer, and I was thinking about this this week as I kind of just came up with this real simple prayer, this real simple mantra, and here it is. Jesus, empower me to be content with all you've given me, right? Now, here's my challenge for you this week, and here's something for you to try. And as I was thinking about this, I've actually been doing this and kind of keeping this close to me. You wake up in the morning and you just begin your day. Before you get out of bed, you just say this a few times to yourself. Jesus, would you empower me to be content with all you've given me? Right? Would you empower me to be content? We don't live in a time and an age and a culture that says, hey, you know what's a good thing, a good value for you? Be content, right? Um, but would you empower me to be content? And so I was thinking about this in just kind of everyday life because when Amazon Gold Box notifies you of that new deal that's coming up, right? And you just come back to this prayer and you say, Lord, I, I see all these things on sale and these, these great discounts and all that stuff. Would you empower me to be content with what I have, right? When you get the, the Sunday paper and the Target ad comes, right? Or you get in the mail those Costco coupons or whatever it is, and you look at all that stuff and you're kind of paging through all these, these messages to say, hell, hear this, buy, consume this, that. And you just kind of look at all this stuff and you just say, Jesus, would you just teach me to be, con-? sorry, Isan, that was the target, maybe not target because. <laughs> um, but you just say, Jesus, would you just teach me to be content with what I have? Right? You see maybe your neighbor or, or a family member that's doing that kitchen remodel or that bathroom remodel or, or they're getting their backyard redone and you're just thinking like, oh man, I wish I want to do that. And then you just kind of look at your, and you just say, Jesus, would you just teach me? Would you empower me to be content, right? Your brother or sister gets those new shoes. Um, maybe you're driving around at the hospital and you just see this, um, that pastor has that really nice car and you just pray to yourself, Jesus, teach me to be content, empower me to be content. That didn't, I thought that was going to be funnier again. I was just trying that joke one more time to see if it would go. Um, in Germany? I'll consider moving to Germany. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, this, this kind of this this concept of being empowered, 
having the power in the spirit for contentment. Haman, again, has it all. Not happy, right? You and I, I mean, are we, are we, we're so blessed. We have so much, right? Right? And we just pray this as a mantra. We just keep this close to ourselves. Jesus, Jesus, help me to embrace contentment. Okay? Embrace contentment. Uh, we haven't really kind of cracked too much into the Bibles yet, but if you got a Bible, would you go to page 441? I want to go to Proverbs chapter 6. Um, there's this passage here in Proverbs 6, and it, it talks about the things that the Lord hates, which we don't often talk about. Um, we don't act, often put those, you know, unless we see it on some sign that God hates. But here are some things that God hates. And the writer of Proverbs says that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Um, and it says haughty eyes, right, or eyes that are arrogant a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension in the community. Right? So haughty isn't like sexual? Like, like she's a hottie? Not that kind of hottie. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean... means like, prideful, arrogant. So it's arrogant. It's an, it's an arrogant person. Uh, arrogant, right? Like no, no. Think more in terms of arrogance and pride. Okay. One of the things that this text engages, I think it's fascinating about this text, this text engages kind of all of the body. You have the eyes, right, that are mentioned. You have the tongue. You have the hands. You have the heart. You have the feet, you have mouth, you have almost, again, there is some sense of the entire being of this person being defiant against God and his ways, right? That's kind of what you, the, the, the writer of the Proverbs is doing here, right? There is also another thing I would say that there is this irony about all the ways that we can sometimes think that we'll get ahead in life with these actions, yet they actually corrode and undermine our souls. I called it a violent rest. Right? Because you think about lying, and often we lie because we think that we can kind of shortcut a situation or circumvent a situation, and it'll actually get us ahead in that situation. But what happens? We end up behind, right? And maybe you think about um, somebody who uses false witness, or you think about somebody who has pride and all these sorts of things. Sometimes they think that we can get ahead in life through some of these actions, but they end up corroding and undermining our souls. Now again, go back to Haman. What do we notice in Haman? We notice his pride, right? He's furious because Mordecai won't bow to him. He's boasting about his wealth, his sons, and his honor. We notice the way that he lies, right? He goes to the king and he says, you know, those Jews, all of them, 
all throughout the kingdom. None of those Jews, they won't obey, they won't honor. We've got to kill them all, Xerxes. Let's, th- those, that whole tribe, right? Now, Haman won't bow down to him, but he's ready to, to kill everyone. Notice his idea here is he says, we need to get rid of all of them. He's completely ready to shed innocent blood. In, in verses, chapter 3, 13, he says, young, old, women, and children, they all must be annihilated, right? Notice Haman, who has these wicked schemes, he has this decree written for the annihilation of the Jews. He sits down and he says, okay, look, we got to write this thing out. Here's how it's going to happen. This is the day that it's going to happen. Here's how I'm going to pay for it. He is, has this whole scheme, this whole plan that he's devising to kill and destroy all of the Jews, right? Notice that he's quick to evil, from Mordecai, this one man who won't bow down to him, now he wants to kill everyone, right? From Mordecai, that night after the party, when he sees Mordecai at the gate and he won't bow down to him, and he goes home and he says, you know what I'm going to do? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to put him, I'm going to make a 75-foot tall stake, and I'm going to hang him on that tomorrow morning, right? He, he's quick to jump into evil. Notice Haman, again, the false witness, the tongue. Again, I would say we notice this again. I'm kind of using the, the lying and the false witness kind of in the same the same realm here, but again, just lying and just saying all those Jews won't obey. Fights among brothers and family. He creates all this division in the community, right? Um, th- when we read chapter four last week and, and Esther and Mordecai are going back and forth and, and Hat Hatch the eunuch is going back, there's, there's some serious tension in that passage between the two of them. Mordecai's like saying, look, if you don't do this, like you're, you're going to die. And, and Esther's coming back and saying, well, why do I do, have to do this? And there's some serious tension. Haman, and if you notice Haman's life, all the things that God is against, all the things that God detests, all the things that God hates, you notice in Haman, right, like almost his entire being is against Yahweh. He's made his stand. Now, notice the verse right before this, this kind of all these things that God hates, right? 615, and, and this is one of the translations. You watch. His actions will bring sudden disaster. In an instant, his life will be shattered and there will be nothing to save him. Right? There will be nothing to save him. And so you go from what God hates and you understand that that brings disaster. It brings shattered, nothing to save him. I would say this too, and kind of the third and the last one. You know, we talked just about the worship of, of Jesus as paramount. We just have to, to put our minds, our hearts, our souls entirely on Jesus to embrace contentment. And then I was thinking kind of, to me, the opposite of this list of what God hates is the fruit of the Spirit. And I just want to close this morning and, and um, I want to just kind of read through the fruit of the Spirit. And again, we talk about this and you probably are familiar with this. You probably learned it in Sunday school class. I want to read this. This one's out of the message. And I just put each little fruit... Um, on one slide for us to kind of pause and and observe. So let's read this fruit of the Spirit. So Paul in Galatians says, the fruit provided by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. Right? The fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. Now here's the list. And just, we'll read it and we'll pause a little bit and just let each one soak in on us. Joy that overflows. 
peace that subdues, that calms. Patience that endures. Kindness in action. A life full of virtue. Faith that prevails. Gentleness of heart. And strength of spirit. Right. We see what, what God hates. We see that in Haman. We see his entire being oriented against God. And yet we see here in Galatians what a, a being that's oriented towards God, how divine love is manifested in that person and moves out. And again, I, I guess I didn't really give you instructions on how to destroy your life, but if you worship God, if you, if you worship Jesus, if you put your heart and your mind and your soul towards Jesus, if you embrace contentment, if you let the fruit of the Spirit dwell and manifest itself through you, right? That would give, and maybe I should have done a picture of Olstein's book, Your Best Life Now, but that will give you the life that's promised in Christ, the life of the Spirit, the life of a disciple. Let me say a prayer, and then we'll do a little discussion. Um, Lord, we're gathered to worship you, above and all the other stuff that I talked about, that's it. Mind, heart, and soul to worship you. Our spirits, our relationships, our finances, our, um, our lives, everything that we are is to worship the name of Jesus, to make your name great in this world. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A um, couple questions. The three Ps, the praise, the pushback, the problems. Uh, did you agree or disagree with Wallace's quote, why or why not? Did you like that quote? Maybe there's something that stood out to you from that quote. Um, what is one area of your life in which you unhealthily strive for a bit more? Um, as you were kind of Again, kind of going off that Wallace quote, is there something that you feel that lust where you just don't have enough and you just keep unhealthily striving? Is there a different area that you might need to be content with? So those two questions are very similar. Uh, in the list of what God hates, what makes your blood boil most? Why do you think that is? Is it the lying? Is it the wicked schemes? Is it the dissension between families? 
Um, and then what fruit, I guess, was most appetizing to you? Was there one that, as we were just kind of going through those slowly, the spirit just kind of might have resonated one with you? So take a few minutes on those questions, and then we'll, we'll have some discussion. Yeah, I could put that back up. Uh, wrong one. Are you want this one or this one, Brian? This one? This part? The first part or the second part? The atheist part. This is the atheist part, yeah. Next one? Is that good? Okay. We go back to the questions. Basically, what do you worship, right? Right. Okay. Take a few moments and then uh, we'll have some discussion. Then my wife says it's freezing in here, so I'm going to turn the air off. Is that true? No, I love it. You love it? I'll turn it down just a little bit. Yeah, this is the new um, 